Amen. All right, well, as you find your seat this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Acts 17. We'll be camping out here in the last, the last part of Acts 17. As we covered the first part last week, we'll be in verses 16 through 34. But before we get there this morning, I want to, want to take a quick pit stop at Google search bar. So pretend that I am your Google search bar and you have searched... How can I know that I'm happy? How can I know that I have freedom in life? How can I know that I have, I have purpose in life? And I, as your Google search bar, said, I'm glad you asked. Here is an article from lifehack.org. If you're into life hacks, here it is. Here's 15 things that tell you that your life has meaning, life has purpose, life has, you found freedom in life. Number one, you dread nothing. Your habits work for you. You make your own decisions. You are full of energy. You believe in your abilities. You are financially comfortable. You ask for help from others. You have free time. You know yourself. You are independent. You're physically healthy. You laugh. You fulfill your needs. You don't let others hold you back. And last but not least, you have fun. And I bring up these points this morning because I think our culture, this is what our culture identifies as happiness. This is what our culture identifies as, okay, I have purpose. I've achieved freedom. We must look within ourselves to find true happiness. We must believe in our abilities. I must have enough money to be happy. I, must, I love this one. We must not have any sickness. So as soon as I get a cold, I no longer have freedom. I'm no longer happy. I, I can't. I, I'm just sick. I have a cold. We must laugh X amount of times a day. If I didn't laugh this amount of times during the day, okay, I'm no longer happy. We must not listen to others because they'll just hold us back. It's up to me to make myself happy. And then lastly, we must have fun to be happy. All of these things revolve around us, revolve around our circumstances, revolve around our control. It's all me, me, me. I'm the center of the universe. And quite frankly, as I was reading this list this week, I became exhausted because it's all about what I have to do to achieve this. It's all about how I can control this thing to make this thing happen. And it, it's exhausting to think about living a life like that. If I can achieve all these things, I'm free. I have meaning. I'm, I have purpose. I'm happy. And what we'll see this morning, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's not far off from what Paul is dealing with in Athens. He's going to be addressing this group in Athens, as we're going to look at in Acts 17, and we need to see the parallels of what they believe and what we see in our own culture, because when we see that, we can take Paul's example and say, oh, okay, this is what Paul did, and it's not that much different from what we need to do today. There's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. It may look a little different, it may be wrapped a little differently, it may be said a little differently, but there's nothing new under the sun. And Scripture gives us the precedent, gives us the example of how to handle these things. And so we need to, we need to look and learn from Paul's example this morning in Acts 17. So let's remind ourselves of where we've been in Acts, from at least Paul. Paul has been sent to the Gentiles. He's been at this for many chapters now, as we've been covering every week. And we've seen Paul's practice as he gets into a new city, he goes into a synagogue, he goes into the marketplaces. He does this as he's following Christ's precedent, Christ's example of doing this while Jesus was on earth. 
We saw last week how Paul came into Thessalonica, how he shared the good news, how some joined him after he preached. And then we saw after that group joined him, how this group of Jews became annoyed, uh, became jealous, and they formed a mob. They wanted to find him. They wanted to get him. So what does Paul do? He gets out of there by night. He goes to Berea by night. What does he do the next day in Berea? He goes right back into the synagogue. He doesn't stop. He goes right back into the synagogue. Again, some people joined Paul in Berea when he shared the good news. And then what happens after that? This pesky group of Jews, they show right back up and say, ah, we see he's over there now. We're going to go get him there in Berea. And so that's where we find Paul this morning. He's come from Berea. He's come to Athens on the coast. He's fleed to Athens. This group of men have accompanied him to Athens, and he has sent them back. He said, go back and get Silas and Timothy for me. And so now we see he's alone. Certainly he's tired. Certainly he's exhausted. Certainly he's lonely because he's been with people all the way up until this point. And now he's alone waiting for his brothers to join him. For us, this sounds like a good time for a vacation, good time for some rest and relaxation, some R&R. I mean, if you think of, put yourselves in the shoes of Paul as he's been traveling around. He's had these highs of people joining him. He's had these lows of people rejecting him and chasing him and pursuing him. It's exhausting. It made me think of, I traveled a little bit a couple weeks ago on a plane, and I had to sit in the middle seat on the, in the back of the plane, and I, got, I landed, and I texted my wife, and I said, I'm exhausted. And then I see what Paul's been going through. I was like, wait a second, he's probably really exhausted. So it puts it all in perspective, because we see what Paul has been through here. Certainly this was not a city that Paul was even planning on going to. This wasn't on his missionary itinerary, his missionary journey itinerary. But Luke records for us that Paul is here, and he, he records for us what he does here. And so we need to look at it and see what we should learn from Paul. So without further ado, let's read the text, Acts 17. Like I said, we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to go all the way down through the chapter. I'll be reading from the New English translation, which will be on the screen, uh, but I encourage you to follow along in your translation as well. So verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. So Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as if he needed anything, 
because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move about and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So since we are God's offspring, we should not think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul left the Areopagus, but some people joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for this text that you have put before us today. I thank you for what you have in here that we need to learn from. And I pray that you would help us now as we walk through it to make it clear to our minds, to make the example of Paul clear that we might follow after him and stand boldly for you. I pray that you would open any hearts in here that need to hear your truth, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would help each one of us apply this text to our lives, that we might leave here following you as more devout Christians. Lord, I thank you so much for your love even to bring us to this place this morning. You are such a good, good God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I've entitled this sermon, Paul's Consistent Stand, and there's going to be three elements to that. There's going to be the setting for his stand, which we're going to look at the people he's talking to, his audience, where he is, what these people stand for. So that's going to be the setting. Then we're going to have the content of his stand, where, what he actually says to this group of people. And then at the end, we'll briefly look at the results of this, the results of his stand, the results of his teaching to this group of people. So let's start in verse 16. We'll just walk verse by verse down through here and see what we should learn. So verse 16, we see Paul waiting for them in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. But this is the first time that we see Paul waiting in the book of Acts. This is the first time that Luke has included that for us. So it's a new season. It's a new thing that Paul is going through in his life, at least in ministry that we have recorded. And so we need to consider the question, okay, why does, why does Luke record that, that he's waiting? What does he do with this, with this new experience? Well, if he's looking for some R&R, some rest and relaxation, as, you, as we all identified that he might be, that we would be, it didn't last very long. Because what do we see at the end of verse 16? We see that his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. And this immediately made me think, well, why was this such a big deal to his spirit? Why couldn't he just ignore it and keep going and keep doing what he was doing? Why couldn't he just wait for his brothers? Why was it such a big deal? Well, we'll get into that when we get into the content of his message. But even before we get there, we've seen how Paul, how well studied Paul is in the Old Testament. And what do we see in the Old Testament? If you spend any time in the Old Testament, you see how many times that the Israelites fall into, an, into idolatry. 
And so we see that Paul's heart is troubled by the things that goes against God's character. And so we instantly see that his spirit is greatly upset. Paul understood the severity of what's going on here in this city. But what we see him do with his troubled spirit is so interesting because he doesn't go into a tizzy and start trying to go destroy all the idols in the city of Athens. He doesn't go out and street corner preach and start telling people to repent of their idolatry. He also doesn't go and hide in his fancy Athens, Athens resort and wait for his buddies to come, come to him. What do we see him doing? Well, verse 17 shows us. Verse 17 says, So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happen to be there. So here we see that Paul is about what he is called to do. He's going into the synagogues. He's going into the marketplace, and he's proclaiming the good news. He's faithful in imitating Jesus' practice of as he gets to a new city. He goes into the synagogue. He preaches in the marketplace. And in verse 18, it helps us see what he's addressing them with. It's not strictly just a message about idolatry. He doesn't get on this hobby horse and say, I'm just going to hit idolatry over and over and over again. What do we see in verse 18? It says he was proclaiming, the end of verse 18, he says he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the, re and the resurrection. So we see that Paul is being persistent in his message because what have we seen in Acts? He's done this in Iconium, in Derbe, in Thessalonica, in Berea. He's consistently going into these cities and proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So he's persevering in his call to infiltrate the Gentiles. And remember, he's being chased by this group of Jews. Who's to say that he doesn't know that they might chase him to Athens as well? But he is still being consistent and diligent with what God has put before him and called him to do. So as we come to verse 18, there's this new group, two groups of people that we need to identify. Verse 18, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So we need to identify these philosophers. There's two different groups here. The Epicureans were followers of the Greek philosopher Epicurus who originated in the 3rd century BC. And this belief held that the chief end of man was to be happy. And whatever you needed to do in life to be happy, that is what you should pursue. This could look like pursuing intellect by higher education. This could look like pursuing sensual pleasure. This could look like pursuing material gain through making money your chief end, pursuing money. This group did not believe in an afterlife. They thought that when you died, you were gone. Your body was done, your soul was gone, nothing happened after you died. This group would not have said that there was not a creator, but certainly that the creator did not work within his creation. The key phrase we need to remember for the Epicureans is maximum happiness. Whatever you could do in life to achieve maximum happiness, that is what you should do. So that's the Epicureans. The Stoic philosophers, they believe that there was universal reason that ruled the earth. And by tapping into this reason, man could be in tune with himself. He could understand himself. He could understand nature. And by understanding himself, by understanding nature, he could control his reactions to everything that's going on around him. And this control leads him to be able to live in harmony with everything going on around him. And so it's all about him controlling his circumstances, controlling his emotions. And so the, the phrase to remember for the Stoics is maximum discipline. It's, it's bringing themselves under discipline that I can achieve this happiness or achieve this meaning in life. And these philosophies, like we talked about already in the intro, are not far off from what we see today. 
as I was reading down, as I was studying these philosophies these last couple weeks, there were a couple of phrases that came to my mind that I have used and I have heard quite often. So these might be familiar to you too. Just have faith. Okay, faith in what? What am I supposed to have faith in? Keep your head up and be positive. Okay, well, this person in my family just died. Why am I supposed to keep my head up and be positive? I would identify those two phrases, just have faith, keep your head up and be positive, as the Stoics, having discipline in your life. I have enough faith. Uh, I have my head up. I'm being positive. Something good's going to happen to me. That's the Stoics. And here's a couple other phrases. These are more popular, I think, and I've caught myself using these too. You do you. Okay, well, I don't really like what I do most of the time, but you do you. Or do whatever makes you happy. Doesn't matter what you want to do, just do whatever makes you happy. Those sound very much like the Epicureans, maximum happiness. And remember those 15 things that we talked about at the beginning the, that, give, that show that we have meaning and freedom in life. You know, do I laugh enough? Am I financially stable enough? Am I healthy enough? Do I believe in myself enough? I just have to tap into my inner self to have power. These ideas from this philosophy are so relevant today. So these are the philosophers, these Epicureans and the Stoics. These philosophers came together to make up this council. It's said in, in my translation as the Areopagus. This council's meeting place in Athens was on Mars Hill. And so a lot of your Bibles may use titles such as Paul on Mars Hill, Paul's Sermon on Mars Hill. And that's why, because the Areopagus, they met on Mars Hill. And so we don't know if Paul is on Mars Hill or if they're in the marketplace meeting. We don't really know. But that's why Mars Hill, Areopagus, the council, those are all kind of synonymous with one, each other, with one another. And so if you hear me say one of those, that's what I'm talking about this morning. This council, their role within the city of Athens was to oversee the education in the city. They were to determine if the teaching was moral or not. This person would come in, they'd want to publicly teach within the city, and they could, be, they could expect to be brought before this council for this council to determine whether this teaching was approved for the city of Athens. That's what this council's role was. Think of like a school board on steroids, because it's not just the school board, it's the whole city that this council is determining if the teaching is okay. This, this act of this council bringing Paul before them, this was not an aggressive act. We see that here in verse 19 and 20. It says, So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so we want to know what they mean. So the, the, whole, the language here is just out of curiosity. We want to know what you're teaching. These are curious things that you're bringing to our ears. And it's interesting because the whole city of Athens reflects this curiosity. And verse 21 lets a little light into what the city is like. Verse 21 says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. So we can paint a picture of what Athens was at this time, and we should, to understand what Paul is facing here. It's believed that the population in Athens at this time was around a quarter of a million people. So it's a very large city. And we have to understand that Athens is almost the hub of new ideas at this time. It's, it's like the Panama City Beach of tourism, where everybody comes into Panama City Beach, and they bring their ideas with them, and it's like a melting pot for all these different philosophies. 
Now, something that probably differentiates Athens from Panama City Beach is the knowledge. I don't want to call Panama City Beach dumb. I'm just saying that Athens was known for knowledge. Starting under Pericles in the 5th century BC was the hub for Greek science, Greek philosophy, Greek art. And we know now that Athens is under the control of Rome, but that that culture that began in the 5th century under Pericles is still, this culture is steeped in this philosophy, this art, this science. This is where the Harvard or Yale would have been at this time. Think the Ivy League schools. And I picture this council, as they're bringing Paul before him to hear his teaching, to decide if it's good for their city or not, I picture them as like a cooking TV show. I don't watch cooking TV shows, however, I've heard if you make something on a, t- a cooking TV show and the judge likes your food, you get to stay on the show and keep going through the rounds. And if you win, you probably get your own restaurant. But if they don't like your cooking, you get booted out. You get, you get sent to the next cooking TV show to try again. That's what this council is doing. That's what the Areopagus is doing here. They're trying to decide if Paul's teaching is okay for the city of Athens. If it's not okay, they're going to send him somewhere else. And it's interesting because we can relate to this type, of, this type of learning, this type of analyzing what we're hearing to our world today. Think about social media. You get to decide what you keep and what you get rid of. And what happens is we don't keep what kind of offends us, and we get rid of, or we keep, what makes us feel good about ourselves. If you were here last week for our small groups, you'll remember this. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 through 4 says, For there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. They're not going to tolerate truth. What will they do? Instead, they'll follow their own desires. They They will accumulate teachers for themselves. The student group upstairs last week talked about how social media does this for you how you watch this one video and you comment on it and you like it, you follow the page, whatever, and it completely affects your algorithm and the algorithm then collects all the teachers for you. And so social media does the work of accumulating your teachers. Keep going in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Why do they accumulate teachers for themselves? Because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. Sounds a lot like Athens, right? They're always wanting to hear the new things that are in the city. And they will turn away from hearing the truth, but on the other hand, they will turn aside to miss. So they turn away from the truth right into lies. So we see that people move on from thing to thing, but the thing that is so interesting about this account of Paul before Mars Hill, before the Areopagus, is what do we remember about this council? What do we remember about Mars Hill? We remember them the most for what Paul presented to them. We don't remember this other... all the other things of them trying to figure out this philosophy and what's going to stand in Athens, which this is a testament to us of Scripture standing forever, that Scripture is the infallible word, not these other man-made philosophies. They're not going to last, but it's Scripture that will last. So this is the setting for the stand that Paul is about to take. This is the group that he's before, This is the city he's in. He's in front of this council. For us, think sophistication. Think your professors in college. Think your boss at work, if your boss at work is smart. Just think somebody in your life that you're intimidated by, by how smart they are, and say, okay, if I have to stand before this person and present truth to them, I'm intimidated by that. I don't want to. That's who Paul is before here. 
But what does Paul do? We're about to see. There's one other important thing before we move on that this group has already predetermined thoughts. They have presuppositions about Paul. We know that from verse 18. Let's read verse 18. Also, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? So here we see, they already have called him a foolish babbler. This foolish babbler has a connotation of this person that just pulls all these different philosophies, and he makes them his own, but he doesn't really know what he believes. He doesn't have a strong foundation. Go on in verse 18. Others said, there's this other group that says, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods or foreign deities. So they've, they've heard him declare Jesus in the resurrection. Like, we need to hear about this guy. Sounds like a foreign god. And as we're about to see, this city is steeped in all kinds of gods and idolatry. So before we move on to the content of the stand, let's consider what Paul is before here and try and apply it to our own lives. Do the circumstances or the audience, the audience that we're talking to, the person we're talking to, does who we are in front of affect our willingness to take a stand? Because we're about to see the stand that Paul is about to take. However, the audience that he was before, the city that he was before, did not affect what he was going to say. How many of us would have retreated to our hotel room while we're waiting for our buddies instead of coming before these people and boldly proclaiming the gospel of Christ? When we're in a time of waiting or in an unexpected season like Paul is here, do we shove off any opportunity to actually do what God has called us to do, to be faithful in what God has called us to do? Or do we get about the things that God has called us to do? Because Paul was faithful in going into the synagogue and look at this opportunity that is now before him. So let's move on. That's the setting of the stand. Let's move on now to the content of the stand. And this content really begins in verse 22. Verse 22 says, so this is Paul speaking to this council. 22, so Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. This is Paul immediately building rapport with this group. This group would have said, Paul's an outsider. He doesn't really know that much about us. But Paul comes in and says, I see that you are very religious in all respects. And they would have said, yeah, we are. You're right. You know us. Because what we're about to see is they are. He says, I know what you're about. Verse 23. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship. And in other words, I've been checking you out. I've been around your city. I know what you're about. And see, this is where his spirit, remember his spirit being greatly troubled in verse 16 comes into play. It becomes so significant. He didn't address the idolatry right there when he saw what was going on in the city, how, but he waited. He was faithful in what God had called him to do. And now we see his, this opportunity that he has to stand before this council and think about how significant this is because the council gets to determine the entire city, what they hear, what teaching they hear. And now Paul has an opportunity to address them. So that troubled spirit that he had in verse 16 feels like a cannon that he's being launched out of now, where he's able now to proclaim God, proclaim the good news to, this, to these people. So he, what do we see him do? He addresses this altar that he found, which said to the unknown God. This altar functioned as a way in the society for them to cover their bases. This isn't an altar for them to worship Yahweh God, the God of Israel. But what this reveals about them is that they know that they miss something. 
They're steeped in idolatry, but for them to create this altar to this unknown God, it's them saying, we have all these other idols, we have all these other things that we worship, but we don't think we got it all. So we're just going to create this altar, and he, this altar is going to cover everything else that we think we might have missed. And Paul sees that they have this knowledge that they missed something, and he jumps on it. What does he say in verse 23? He says, therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. He's saying, let me tell you about this God that you're missing. And this is where he really gets into the meat of the content of his stand here. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth. So instantly we see Paul appealing to God as the creator and the ruler of the world. He made the world and everything in it. And no, no, he didn't only just make it, but he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's ruling heaven and earth. Verse 24 goes on to say, does not live in temples made by human hands. God does not live in temples made by human hands. Here Paul is appealing to the self-existence of God. The fancy word for this is the aseity of God. He exists outside of creation. He doesn't live in what you make. He doesn't live in your idolatry. Verse 25 he says, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. This is another example of the aseity of God. This is the self-sufficiency of God. He is sufficient in himself. You and I, these people in Athens, we can do nothing to add or subtract from God. He is self-sufficient within himself. Verse 25 goes on. Paul goes on in verse 25. He says, he himself, God himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. This is Paul appealing to God as the sustainer of his creation. He's saying to these people that if it wasn't for God, you would be dead because he wouldn't be sustaining you. You wouldn't have breath in your lungs. It is because of God that you have breath in your lungs and he is sustaining you. Verse 26, Paul says, From one man he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and fixed limits of the places where they would live. This is Paul appealing to God as being sovereign. Nothing is happening in creation that God is not orchestrating and ordaining and controlling. He is guiding and directing, giving set times and fixed limits of where these people should go, where they should live, when they should live. So God is sovereign in verse 26. Verse 27. And as we read down through here, I think it's important to realize, remember how we describe these philosophers, what they stood for. These things that Paul is saying, you and I agree with them, and we can amen them and say, yeah, but these people, this would have flown directly in the face of all the philosophy that they had, what they thought life was about. This would have flown directly in the face of their beliefs. But let's go on in verse 27. He says, so that they would search for God. Remember, he just talked about the sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here, Paul is appealing to God as being visible in every heart and omnipresent, omnipresent in that he is not far from each one of us. But this first phrase, this visible in every heart, or grope around for him and find him, that's him saying that God is visible in every heart. What, is that, what does that phrase grope around for him and find him mean? Well, this word grope has, has the connotation of like a blind man searching for something. So it's like me searching for this podium, 
but my eyes are closed and I can't find it. And it takes somebody to open up my eyes to say, oh, here's the podium. Now I can come to the podium and latch onto the podium. It's not talking about salvation, but it's talking about that every man has this knowledge that there is a God out there. He's blind, but he knows within his mind that there is a God. And I think, let's turn to Romans 1, because Romans 1 is going to help clarify this even further in our minds of what Paul is teaching. So turn to Romans 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 20. This is going to clarify a lot of what Paul is bringing out here. Romans 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, so here we are at creation again, God being creator, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So it is through creation, it is through how God works in his creation, that every man knows that there is a God. At the end of verse 20, it's clear. So people are without excuse. Everyone knows that there is a God. Verse 21. For although they knew God, and I want to read these verses because I think this so accurately describes what is going on in Athens. It paints a picture of what these philosophers, what these people, what Paul, who Paul is speaking to in Athens, what they stand for. In verse 21 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. And here we go, verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the philosophers. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, that knowledge they have of God the Creator, for an image resembling mortal human beings, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. They've exchanged this knowledge of God the Creator for idols. And that's what Athens has fallen into. Flip the page to Romans 2. We'll stay in Romans 2 before we go back to Acts. Romans 2, verse 14 and 15 say, For whenever the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature the things required by the law, these who do not have the law are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts because they do something that they know is right deep down, but they don't know why they're doing it. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts as their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else defend them. So they do something and they feel good about it. Okay, that's their conscience saying, you did the right thing. Or they do something and they feel bad about it. That's their conscience saying, yes, you didn't do the right thing. That's because the law of God is written on their hearts. They know the difference from right and wrong because of what God has revealed to them in their hearts. So that's Romans 1, Romans 2. I think that clarifies what Paul is talking about here as far as somebody groping around and finding God. So flip back to Acts, Acts 17. And as you flip back, this example of somebody having the law written on their hearts made me think of an example of a person that I talked to in Pensacola when I was living in Pensacola. I was at my friend's house. This guy lived next to him, and he was outside, out front, and I was talking to him, and it became, he made it very evident with very early in the conversation that he was an atheist, a self-proclaimed atheist. He had been a part of a church. I think the church hurt him. Something happened within the church, and he said, no, no longer, there is no God anymore. 
So we were having this conversation, and somehow it came up where he said, I'm not going to go murder my neighbor. I'm not going to go murder somebody because I know that's bad for society. I know that's bad for the human race. And I pushed back on, him, on that, and I said, but why? If this person has wronged me, and this person has done something that is not okay, why can't I just go out and rid them from the earth? If there's no God, what's the consequence of that? Who's to say that it's bad for the human race? Why can't I say? But he couldn't wrap around, wrap his mind around the fact that this law of murdering somebody was wrong. It's written on his heart that it is wrong. So God reveals himself in this way in his creation. So no man can say that they do not know there is a God. And Paul drives home this point even further in verse 28. What does he say? For in him we live and move about and exist. Just bracket that phrase right there. That's Paul quoting a direct quote from a poet at this time in Athens from this philosophy that he's teaching. The next phrase, for we too are his offspring. Bracket that. That's another quote from another poet. And so Paul is appealing to their own culture to prove his point. I like picturing these people's faces when he says this, like they're kind of nudging each other, like, did you hear that? He just quoted our own poets. Like, is that okay? I don't think that's right. But he uses their own poets to prove his point. Let's come down to verse 29. He says, So since we are God's offspring, I think that phrase at the beginning of verse 29 is so strong. So since we are, he uses their own poets to prove his point of all these things that he has said. And he says, so since we are God's offspring, he doesn't leave room for wiggle room. He doesn't present the doctrine of God and then say, you can take it or leave it. It might be true. I, this is what I'm going to hold to, but you do. You have, you have your own faith. No. He says, so since we are God's offspring, he doesn't leave room for wiggle room. This is the truth. Whether you like it or not, this is the truth. He says, so since we are God's offspring, keep going in verse 29. We should not think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. He's saying, so since we are God's offspring, your idolatry is false. Verse 30 and 31. Verse 30 says, Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. So here Paul is giving them the next step. Here's the doctrine of God. And he's now commanding people everywhere to repent. He gives them this next step. But let's not overlook the phrase at the beginning of God overlooking such times of ignorance. This parallels Paul's teaching from Acts 14, 16, where he says, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way. So this idea of God overlooking sin is not God not caring about sin. We know that God cares very much about sin. So what does it mean? He has allowed the nations to go their own way in sin according to his plan, and he has overlooked sin by not sending down judgment immediately upon it. God had every right to destroy the earth upon Adam and Eve's sin. God had every right to destroy me before he saved me. In his perfect justice, he had every right to do that. But by him overlooking sin, by him being patient, by him letting the nations go their own way, he drew me, he drew those he has called to himself. 2 Peter 3.9 paints this even better. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but is being patient towards you, 
because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Paul is saying, lest we think that the patience of over, this overlooking sin will continue, Paul says he now commands repentance. Verse 31, he paints repentance in the light of judgment. Verse 31 says, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he mentions judgment, but then he saves this biggest blow out of his whole sermon to these philosophers, to this culture. He saves his biggest blow to the very end, because what does he say? He has provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. He mentions the resurrection of Jesus. And this is something that would have flown directly in the face of what this, these philosophers stood for. They could have taken everything else that Paul said, said, okay, that's your God, fine. But as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, it was, no, the resurrection of the dead is not a possibility. No, sorry, your teaching has to go. And Paul knew this, but did that stop him from proclaiming it? No. He said, he has provided proof by raising him from the dead. I can't sacrifice the resurrection. He talks about in 1 Corinthians how without the resurrection, Jesus is just another man. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said said he was. It is only through the resurrection that Jesus can save us. Paul did not back down from this fact. He stood boldly on the truth of the resurrection. He stood boldly, even before this, on the doctrine of God and his salvation message. And before we move on, I just want to briefly touch on that some people have used this passage as an excuse to dumb down the message that we give people to an intellectual argument. That Paul doesn't use scripture here. We don't need to use scripture but that's not what Paul does. Remember, we already talked about how, how well-studied Paul is in the Old Testament. This doctrine of God, and now this gospel that he is giving them, it's framed throughout Scripture. He's using Scripture. Yes, he's not quoting chapter and verse, per se, but this is all flowing out of Scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't come to these people and come down to the level of their philosophy. He doesn't come off the stage to them, to their level, but he yanks them up to the level of the knowledge of God. He doesn't dumb down his message. He, remember, he described these attributes of God that flew directly in the face of what these philosophers stood for, what they believed. And he proclaimed the good news even amid a crowd, remember, of presuppositions about him. They had already said, you're a foolish babbler. You're a proclaimer of foreign gods. How many of us would that have stopped from even coming before them in the first place? But Paul comes before them and he boldly proclaims the doctrine of God, the resurrection, the gospel, the good news. So before we look at the results of this stand that Paul takes, let's think of a couple questions as we apply this to our own lives. How do we react in situations like this? Does who we are around affect our doctrine? when we know that somebody might be a little smarter than us, that we think, we say, I'm not going to stand up for what I believe because they're not going to like it. They're going to reject it. Does who we are around affect our doctrine? Or do we stand boldly on Scripture and truth for what we know? When the Spirit guides us to share the good news with someone, and that person is our prof from college, our smart boss, somebody with a brain in general, do we get intimidated and kind of clam up and shut up, go hide in a corner, say, I'm not going to proclaim the good news to you, even though the Spirit has convicted me to do so, I'm not going to do it. 
Do we have the knowledge to pull from to, ab- to be able to articulate what we believe? Remember what we talked about last week, being a good student of Scripture, being a good Berean and examining the Scriptures. Have we done that, and do we know truth to stand on from Scripture? Are we able to clearly articulate this to people? Paul was well-studied in Scripture. He was a good student of Scripture. He was able to stand on and proclaim it to this group. So let's look at the results of this stand now in verse 32. And the reason I said all that about the resurrection is because of verse 32. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So what did they get hung up on? They got hung up on the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't say, now when they heard about the doctrine of God, some began to scoff. No, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead. And we see these two groups. Some immediately began to scoff at his teaching. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They laughed at him. They spit at him. And then there's this other group that's curious. We'd like to hear you again about this. But what's interesting about this group is we have no record of this group ever hearing anything else from Paul. After this, Paul, he leaves the Areopagus, and then he goes to Corinth in the next verse, in, at the beginning of verse chapter 18. So we have no record of Paul ever addressing this group again. In verse 34, we see the immediate fruit from this sermon, from what Paul has proclaimed. Verse 34 says, But some people joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see this group that joined Paul. They joined his teaching. They believed in his teaching. They began to follow him. And this parallels what has happened everywhere Paul has been. Where he's proclaimed the good news, there's hearts that have been changed. Where the good news is proclaimed, that's something we need to remember. Where the good news is proclaimed, that's where hearts can be changed. We present the gospel and we trust God to bring those people to himself. So where the good news is proclaimed, that's where hearts can be changed. But on the flip side of that, it's also true that where a dumbed-down gospel is proclaimed, we have dumb converts. And I don't mean dumb as in a rhetorical sense, but I mean dumb as in that they're not actually converts. Because we've dumbed down the gospel to this Jesus who's easy to believe in, this Jesus who you can just tack on to your life and have eternal life at the end of your life, but continue to live exactly how you were before. And we say, you're saved now because you've believed in Jesus or said a prayer or come to the altar. God has revealed everything about himself that we need to know, that we can know in Scripture. And for us to dumb that down rather than be a good student of it and know it and proclaim it, boldly stand on it, we should not dumb that down. It's like looking up at God and saying, your message isn't good enough. It needs to be a little easier for people to believe in. Who are we to tell that to God? We're the clay. He's the potter. We can't look, at, look up at him and counsel him about his good news. No, we stand boldly on his good news and we proclaim it boldly. It's our foundation. I think it's important to consider what if this reaction happened in some of our churches today? This wasn't an altar, altar full of converts kind of thing at the end of Paul's sermon. But did that response, did that desire for that response drive Paul's message? Did he change the content of what he told this council, this school board, this 
group on Mars Hill? Did he change what he was preaching in order to get a response? No. He knew they were going to reject it. He knew most of them were going to reject it, but he boldly stood on it anyway and proclaimed it. And remember, he did this in front of a crowd that was intellectual. They were polished, and they were also skeptical, and they were testing him. So what does this all mean for our own life? What should we take away from this example of Paul? We, see, we have seen this group that he's standing before, this intellectual group, this group that gets to decide the whole teaching of Athens, the things that they get to hear in their teaching. We've seen that this, this setting that he's proclaiming this, it doesn't change his content. He boldly stands on what God has called him to proclaim. He stands on the good news. He stands on the doctrine of God. And he doesn't do, he doesn't change his content. He doesn't do anything different trying to get a response. So what should we learn from that? Well, here's a couple of questions as we finish. Are we being faithful with what God has called us to do even in an unfamiliar season or place? See, Paul wasn't planning on coming to Athens, but that did not stop him from doing what he knew what he was supposed to do. And look at what, how God used him to proclaim this good news, even a member of the Areopagus joined him because of the good news that he proclaimed. Are we digging into Scripture to know God more, to know what we believe, why we believe it? Do we have a defense for what we believe? Do we let culture's definition of happiness or meaning cloud our judgment of Scripture and what we believe about Scripture? Scripture defines those things. The culture doesn't define those things. And then are we willing to leave the results to God? Rather than manipulating the circumstances, manipulating the message, are we, are we willing to leave the results to God? Let's pray.